So this afternoon I have co-founder of Invisible Injuries and Aussie veteran Andy Fermo chatting with me. Thanks for joining me, Andy. Thanks for having me in the studio today, Anya. I'm really grateful to talk to you about this really important issue around homeless heroes, Australian veterans left without a home base. But before we get into that, I'd just like to know a little bit about your background and I know that you were in the services yourself. Mm. Yeah, yes, I was. And uh, so I served uh, 10 years in the Australian Army, yeah, as, as, primarily as a, uh, as a um, signaller, and then I got qualified as a Special Forces Commando for, for the half of my career. So I spent uh, a lot of time um, in Sydney, and during that time I got to work with, uh, you know, the, the best people on top of their game with an amazing leadership, and, and I also got to... Uh, you know, do do the job for real uh, in Afghanistan on two uh, tours in 2007 and 2009. Uh, during that time on my second trip, I was exposed to what I call the trauma triangle, which was earlier in our trip, uh, it was three really super traumatic events uh, in succession, in close succession within a, a few days of each other. Um, and one of them was being blown up by an IED in our vehicle. Um, and um, later, that sort of after my tours uh, developed into PTSD symptoms, which I didn't really acknowledge at the time. Mm. So um, how long yeah. did it take for your symptoms to come on? It wasn't until I I got home and, and I had... And I had started to have time to think, Anya. So, in in the in our particular role, or in any role with, when you're overseas, it's really mission focused. So, uh, with those traumatic events that happen, and, and in particularly being so earlier on in peace, uh, we we had to pretty much take that incident and whatever feelings that I'd had around the incident, and then put it into park. And then it wasn't until I got home where I had time to think and, and I was on leave that things started to, to manifest a lot more in terms of my symptoms. Mm. Can you tell me some of the symptoms that you experienced so that people who are listening might say, oh, yeah, I've got that? Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, sure. Well, it started off with when I first got home, you know, my, my, uh, my now wife... Uh, Claire sort of had this uh, romantic notion of that we'd have this, you know, re repatriation and it'd be all, all you know, stars and roses and everything like that. But it was it was further from the truth. And, and really, when I got home, I, I was a little bit um, distant. And so that distance started off, you know, I wasn't sleeping that well and, and I was having trouble transitioning from being in that type of environment where it was so mission focused and there was a routine set around what we were doing and then coming home to uh, everyday life and then all the other all the other nuances that that sort of brings uh, and usually impulsively these other things are coming in and and I you know I was I was finding it hard to sleep and then I was hyper vigilant and hyper aware when I was in in crowded spaces like the big shops we were living in Sydney at the time. Mm. And then I was, you know, getting startled and also easily angered um, over over basic stuff. So that was the start and, and some of the symptoms that were really starting to manifest uh, shortly after 
my um, return home. Mm. And then and, and then there was other things like uh, prescriptions, like trying to get to sleep, and then also uh, excessive alcohol uh, use just to try and uh, you know either fall asleep or to to numb some of the things that I didn't want to think about. So mm. that, they were some of those symptoms there, aren't you? Mm. Before you left AFC. Did you have any kind of debriefing to to assist you to do that transitioning back to home life? There is a uh, yes, there is, there is a process. So, uh, like with all things uh, military, there's a process surrounding that. And I suppose for me, you know, it, it was more of a at that point in time uh, a bit more of a tick and flick, and I didn't really want to. I didn't know what. It, the PTSD or anything like that was going to be happening to me. So we did go through uh, a series of briefs to be able to say you're going home and, and transitioning back home. Um, probably something for me uh, I should have paid a little bit more attention, but I was just too focused on wanting to be able to, to go home. Mm. And there was a, just a process of tick and flick at that time there, aren't you? Mm, mm. So you, you ended up, with some challenges around trying to comfort yourself with alcohol and mm-hmm. not sleeping, irritability, which is a cl- classic one, yeah. especially in the Sydney traffic with people not being able to drive properly uh, <laughs> in other cars. Um, yes. Where did this all lead for you? Well, so that was all sort of happening in the background. And I think that when, when these things are happening behind sort of uh, closed doors. It was kind of me suffering in silence a little bit because we got back and then we were on leave for a mo- for a little bit. But I actually continued working because the tempo was so high for uh, for for a number of weeks uh, after we got home. And then I took leave. And then so yeah, it was. Yeah, and then that's when when things started to manifest a little bit more. Um, when I was on leave, uh, you know, there was a few on the next tour. There was some also some some of my comrades that had passed away. You know, there was uh, that paid the ultimate sacrifice, and I remember I was in the shop with my with my uh, fiance at the time, and yeah, we uh, we heard the news of there was a, a helicopter crash, and and some of the boys had died, and there were some mass casualties, and that was the point where that sort of that, that trigger that really set me spiraling with my mental health and it was one of those things that I couldn't control and I was back home here and, and that gravity of that news really hit me hard mm. and, and that's when it really sort of all kicked in. Yeah, so was part of the challenge not being there to sort of see them off or to support your other other mates that are over there still serving? Yeah, th- th- there was that, absolutely. There, w- there was that and, not, no, and being home and knowing that they were over there and, and what I'd just sort of come from, it was a really, uh, in our particular role, quite an overt role doing our tasks and to, to achieve our mission. So I knew what, what they were they were experiencing. And I think I sort of felt it vicariously through this news mm. and through what was going on in the media from a different lens of actually not being there, but on the other side looking in going, what's going on? And also having these flashbacks of these this moment or, or, or a, a connection with it, so I wasn't there with that particular traumatic incident, but I could just I could just get this feeling of, of what they were going through at the time, which really was a, a trigger mm. for for, uh, for my own PTSD. 
Did you seek treatment? I did, yeah. But I actually went out of the system because we were, I loved my job so much and, and I didn't want really anyone to know I was sort of suffering uh, a little bit with some mental health. And I, I wasn't really acknowledging at the time as well that I sought help outside the system because I wanted to, to pretty much get another Guernsey to go over overseas. Yeah, and, so I, I went, and, and I've heard terms like, that letting people know that you've got PTSD or you've got some issues might be a career killer. Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. W- without a doubt, 100%, that that being in, in the organisation that I was with has, has a large hand when you actually put your hand up. It's probably changed a bit more from the stigma, but at that time, you didn't want to be saying that there was anything wrong or, or, or that you were experiencing anything that might have been out of the norm because then you became a liability. And and like you said, Anya, it, it is a bit of a, a career killer there because it's easier it's easier to get rid of someone and, uh, and and keep moving forward than it is to really go, you know, what's wrong here, mate? Especially at that point in time when the operational tempo was so high, mm. uh, you know, it didn't feel good. But I also understand now from hindsight that you know, yes, that's that's what has mm. happened. So you you were able to seek some help privately. Yep. And yeah. and uh, but you ended up homeless somehow. So I'm keen to know what's what's happened there. Yeah. So that was that was when I first uh, discharged, and and you know uh, when we became homeless, that was almost ten years later. So I sought help and, and managed to to find a way to be able to nav- navigate my uh, self care plan and and how to seek help with my specialists and, and uh, immediate support network um, earlier in the piece, knowing that if I sort of fell from grace, so to speak, or if my mental health wasn't well, I could always enact that plan. Now, fast forwarding to 2018, I discharged, that was eight years after discharging, uh, a series of uh, uh, unforeseen events culminated in um, myself and the family losing our home mm. and we found ourselves uh not by choice but we were ended up camping for the whole summer and we were in, in noosa at the time and we, so we were went out to the hinterland and we we'd lost our home and uh didn't really know what to do so we were camping because we didn't really have a choice to find accommodation and we spent the fair, some weeks uh, you know, a number of weeks trying to trying to um figure out what we were going to do. And that was a real knockback um, mm. because I never thought that myself or, or my whole family would be homeless. And, and when people think about homelessness, Anya, is that they think about it doing it rough under the park bench. But that's at the extreme at extreme end. And then you've got two other levels. And the second level being someone's hopping from accommodation to accommodation, couch surfing, maybe staying in their car. And it's never really as permanent. And that third level, what happened to us is that we'd lost the home and we were staying in accommodation, being the camping that's underneath what's perceived to be that poverty line for an amount of time. And to, to be... To think that I was homeless like that, even though it wasn't at the extreme case, I never thought in a million years, if you would have asked me two or three years prior to that, would I be homeless? And I said, how does that happen to people? And and it's really, really a hard pill to swallow to to really be in that situation, as well as deal with your mental health 
and or financial issues as well that might might result from that. Yeah, I think very important that people understand. Yeah, not not to stigmatise somebody because they might be end up in a situation where they're homeless, or they might be misusing drugs or alcohol, because there's a whole story behind all of that that uh, isn't evident necessarily on the surface. A hundred percent, you you knocked it on the head right away yeah. there. Yeah, and and uh, do you think people who are homeless get stereotyped? You know, they're they're somehow or other alcoholic vagrants sleeping on park benches or I, I, I think so. I images think so. like that? Yeah, t- totally. And, you know, there's uh, – and, and I've been guilty of that myself, is thinking, okay, well, if thinking on the, the extreme scale and, and that end, and that's the stereotype for per- someone that's homeless. And that's not the case when there's other, other forms – of, of homelessness as well in particular at the moment with the with the housing crisis that's going on especially in the east coast with not being in, uh, able to find accommodation or rentals and people having to to, to sleep rough aren't you and, and in particular veterans who are uh, who are experiencing mental health issues mm. what's the percentage of veterans that are are in homeless crisis yes yeah, so we're a uh, a partner charity uh, with with Classics for a Cause who've done some independent research through a private uh, company. And and the the statistics were really alarming and disturbing, actually. There was six out of ten of the respondents, uh, veterans, had reported that they they sleep rough as the most infrequent accommodation state. So that's along that, you know, higher end of the scale from, from... intermediate to that high end and then uh, one in five veterans are experiencing some form of mental health issues including PTSD in that four years after transitioning so that's quite a, a high number of statistics yeah and are these veterans who've actually seen active service I think that uh, the the from the from the research yes these veterans had actually seen uh, active service or had been deployed in some form from say the 90s uh, from mm. a uh, from from say Timor through till the Middle Eastern conflicts. So I'm talking about contemporary veterans that were interviewed during the study. Mm, mm, mm. And they've got mental health issues, but are they accessing support or can't they access support or are they do people get caught up in? in comforting themselves with other sorts of supports yeah i, I think i think anya that's uh you know all, all three things there's an element of all three things that you've mentioned so firstly someone who's dealing with their own mental health may or may not know how to to access support or nor that they want to put their hand up because of the stigma associated with with seeking help. Uh, secondly, whether they might be taking a lot of uh, you know medications that might not be you know conducive to them making the best decisions, and then all of a sudden they find themselves financially strapped and or having to deal with their own mental health, and they find that they, they get you know become homeless. Or there's the other ones where where uh, people don't want to put their hand up. And, and seek the uh, resources that are available to them, uh, you know, especially for emergency accommodation and, and housing, which there are a number of organisations uh, or veteran ex-services organisations that are out there to, to, to help people in that situation. 
So they're, they're not even wanting to access those services? I think, yeah, it's, it, it's, a, it's a difficult one. Like for me, I'll just use my lens for this one because I, I didn't interview those other veterans in regards to that, is that you come coming from being ex-military and then being in that situation, I found it difficult to put my hand up and ask for help until it was really quite extreme and, and and i think that that's a big one and then secondly if, if someone's suffering from their mental health and they're not making the best decisions i think it's really hard as well to, mm. to, to access those services so i'm i'm imagining it, it's really important that you've got peers mm. who have the lived experience and who know how to have a conversation with you in order mm. to help a person a vet to be able to reach out and seek the help absolutely someone that can listen in a non-judgmental way and then and then sort of also connect with the veteran if you know especially if they've been they're a veteran themselves or a first responder and have been in that type of organizations where they can be empathetic to the trauma that a um that person has experienced but also and then also guiding in the way that solution focused but helping them helping the person that's in need work with them to to find a solution that works for that person Mm, and 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 help them to maintain their dignity and their pride i'm imagining well 100 percent. that that's a big one Mm. you know the sense of purpose the pride the dignity and knowing knowing that there's value in, in in their service can can i ask you about families too and the impact of upon families and you said you were camping with your family so you were still together which is really wonderful but sometimes there's family breakdown and I don't know is there a support for families of, of veterans in these situations? Yes there, there is support for families of the veterans uh, in, in these cases there's uh, you know if I, if I may um, sort of mention a couple of these other organizations with like a veterans counseling service or some of the other uh, uh, legacy or your salvos these guys are, or some of the sub branch welfare groups they'll look after the family of the veteran as long as they know that uh, if, if a veterans sort of separated from their family and the family is experiencing hardship as well there are welfare uh, programs out there to be able to help the families of, of the veteran that's suffering at the time for, for emergency com- accommodation to, uh, to at least take a breather and to be able to uh, come up with a plan moving forward into the long term. Mm. My ex-partner served in Afghanistan. He was in the Navy. He was posted to ISAF. And uh, he witnessed, uh, I think it was code blue on green in Kandahar Airport Base. And I vicariously suffered from that over here. So oh, totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. You, you would, you, you yeah. would, because you know, as, as a as a as a partner of someone or, or or someone that's close that is experiencing those things, you know, you you live in a different way. Mm, mm. Every time I talk to a veteran, I hear the relationship has stayed together. I'm really 
pleased. And, and well, that's that's a big one. And, and I I have like my my wife Claire is just an amazing empowered woman that that you know she's always been there from the ground level up, and was um, wanted to be inclusive in 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 my recovery journey mm. as my partner straight away. So she actually attended the, those really early sessions so that we could put and have agreements about you know the self-care plan so there's agreements that we've had in place for a long time now that if my if i've had a ptsd day and i'm acting like a bit of a pork chop and she'll say a few things and then i'll sort of go well okay that's yeah, go and do your thing she'll go you know and and uh you, you know you're being a this and that but not in a bad way but she it's, it's something that says to me that breaks my pattern of what i'm doing and and really goes okay i just have to to really tip my hat to her and I'm so grateful that she's in my life as someone that's there to support me because not everyone does you know I am um, I'd have had, had so many friends that their relationships have fallen apart after a number of years because the veteran just you know they've got they love their family and all this but they just can't deal with their own stuff mm. so it's actually they feel like it's easier for them to be by themselves or even look at suicide options to that the family's better off without them in that way. Yeah, it's and, sad. Uh, well, it's very sad. And, and if, if there's a, something that we can do to reduce that statistic or, or help someone with their own mental health and, and self-care plan or what they can do to implement in their own, I think that that's a big one there, Anya. Mm. And I think what you're saying too is that, you know, having a home mm. and accommodation where you feel safe and secure is really a big part of that recovery, being able to recover. Oh, it's massive. It's, yeah. it's, it's totally massive. And that was one of the reasons as well, Anya, why we moved to Perth, just from on a personal note, because after we did our tour, as we were doing our tour, there were so many people moving up to the Sunshine Coast. We were from you know beautiful Noosa. We, one, we got priced out, but there was just, no accommodation like it, you know there was veterans that were finding themselves homeless besides the general population and and you know really going to extremes with their own mental health and and you know not knowing that we couldn't go back there and, and we've got our stuff in storage but that would have been an additional stress to be homeless again after this big tour of helping veterans so when we finally got to Perth, we're actually staying with my parents at the moment, trying to feverishly save up for a house because, you know, that's the only way we can get ahead and Perth still got a opportunity for us to be able to, to, to get that Australian dream and, and secure a nest, so to speak, for our own. We've got somewhere secure to stay at the moment. Is it permanent? No, um, but it's a, a lot more better beneficial for the mental health that we know that we've got somewhere where we're not trying to rent or find somewhere as well as trying to save to, to find something that's a much more solid platform for us in case my mental health goes down downhill you know yeah. i want i want that for my family and myself mm. but you know it, it all takes time and uh you know and it's a challenge that we have to overcome again yeah but it sounds like whatever you've been doing in terms of your recovery mm. it sounds like your feet are sort of firmly planted on the ground and that you're well on your way in a good way. Yeah, oh, look, thank you so much. You know, I, I try and stay positive. You know, I do have my days and then, you know, the wheels could fall off really easily. And that's why I'm a big advocate for, you know, using those uh, resources that are available, especially the ones when you're kind of in an intermediary sort of 
scenarios, like going from somewhere like the Noosa to, to Perth, you know, I have to set up my whole specialist network of people again. And, and it just comes down to the self-care activities that I do that really sort of help out in, 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 the, in between, mm. you know. Tell me a little bit more about the Invisible Injuries group that you've you've founded it with your partner, didn't you? Yeah, we did. We did. Uh, Anya, is that we when we were we were licking our wounds, uh, you know, homeless and camping in 2018. It was out of that adversity. So I'm not a, a clinician, and I never will uh, profess to be a clinician at this point of time. But we I'm we were working on our lived experience of what happened to us. And it was out of that adversity where my wife mentioned, you know, um, she said, well, why don't we document your recovery journey and what you do? Because you learned earlier in the piece how to be able to do that. And then how can we find out what services are available locally? I know that it's easy to be able to uh, say more needs to be done. And that's a given, you know, that's yeah a fact. But also there's resources already available if you know about them. So she said, why don't we find out what resources are available? And this is us on the Sunshine Coast. And then thirdly was to be able to find the stories of our peers that have also been in these situations and what did they do to uh, to get out of it in their own self-care plan. And then that way our audience would be able to take these nuggets or be connected to, to what's available to them locally and, and that's what we we set out to do with invisible injuries also and, and set out that we would do a ptsd national awareness campaign which we did through covid last year so we spent we spent all of last year on the road visiting the states that we could at the time that were uh open to the borders and and and, and spoke about ptsd and mental health as mental health ambassadors so that's what we did with Invisible Injuries. Uh, now we're here in Perth, Anya. Mm. Well, I, I like the title because, you know, I, I think I told you I've got PTSD myself mm. and mm. it is something that's invisible. You know, people only know sometimes that you, something's going on when you're very irritable. It's one of the signs <laughs> for me. <laughs> yeah. But And COVID, my understanding is that COVID has had significant impacts, particularly on people who are living with post-traumatic stress disorder. Did it did it trip you up a bit, or was the fact that you were out there on the road uh, and still supporting other people did that help you? Yes, yes, it did. So I think for us, uh, the adversity that we'd gone through in the previous years before COVID came to town was a real was a good grounding for us. We'd done <laughs> we'd already been through such um, adversity and and had our systems in place. As a, as a family with our immediate support systems and our, our, our specialist networks, that when COVID came to town and, we, and it came to us uh, doing the tour, that that put us in good stead. But also, when we did, when I did depart for the tour, was con- continuing to have a foot on the ground in regards to my own self care. Um, even though we were helping other people, uh, I managed to, to uh, c- uh, continue on with a self-care plan that allowed for, for me to be able to sort my own my own head out while we were on tour. And then also that comfort of being able to speak with people and, and connect with them during the tour, that we spoke with so many different veterans and first responders and their families that were on the road 
that were on the road for very similar reasons as well. Mm. I thought that that was a, a big help in terms of the mental health for me and then some of the other veterans that we met on the road. But I think also being on the road, it was it was very similar to what I was familiar with overseas it was there was a routine around you know where are we going next who are we going to be speaking with and then it became the the routines of setting up camp transiting with our caravan and then setting up so that was that comfort subliminally that I'd already sort of experienced firsthand before being overseas on on deployment Anya which is funny I've only sort of thought about that in the last couple of months but that's why I was so comforted by doing that whole exercise as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Routine is just so important. And uh, when the mm. routine for me was broken during COVID mm. with not being able to go to the gym or for walks or be outside or connect with other people, oh. that's had significant effects, I think, on, on lots of people who didn't even have PTSD, but even more so for those who who are struggling uh, with the invisible injuries, as you've aptly named it, so uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, if you, and the thing is, with invisible injuries, you, as it says, you, you can't see them. But like a like a, a physical injury, um, and I'll just say, use a, a shoulder or a knee in a sports analogy. You know, you can do an injury that's physical, and you can have it worked on, and then you can do the work to to bring it to rehabilitate it, and it'll be good but it's always going to be susceptible you can bring it good to a point but it's always going to be susceptible to a trigger and that's something like with invisible injuries you can't see it but you might be in a better spot but something can trigger you and you can just fall over again mm. quite quickly mm. and that's the thing about not being able to see those invisible injuries on you mm. Mm. I, I, I really understand what you're saying yeah. Yeah, and, so, and if, if I'm if, sorry, if I may sort of add to that a little bit though, but so I've, uh, as an exercise of this, Anya, I started doing some work with Lifeline because of the uh, Royal Commission and into veteran suicide, and and through this work is just noticing even amongst the general population that mental health, this this whole the 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 COVID and the pandemic has really affected people in so many ways with these invisible injuries mm. you, know, you can tell yeah yeah and we need more supports out there but a variety of supports and yeah. but you're also you're involved with the charities classics for a cause what are they yeah. about so charity uh classics for a cause we're a partner uh charity and uh, classics for a cause uh for um, have have a purpose to help out their fundraising through their uh, classics cars, their monthly giveaways of the muscle cars, and then partner charities like myself and several others uh, receive donations from the proceeds of those classics cars giveaways so that that enables us to be able to have our service delivery to our audience over multiple different disciplines, mm. you know, whether it's us connecting veterans and, and, and connecting people with the story so that they can implement them into their own uh, self-care plans to uh, PTSD dogs who are providing assistance dogs for veterans in need with mental and, and first responders to a whole bunch of other organisations that are out there. And that's what they're doing is that 
uh, funding is a, a large issue with, with many charities. So these guys are helping uh, charities with our mission by making donations through their uh, fundraising, which is the, the cars. Yeah, I, I saw something on Facebook about these cars that were being kind of raffled off or something. Yes. And yep. I I didn't understand it, so I'm really yep. glad to know more about it. So it's a bit like the RSL lotteries, but you've got very flash done up cars. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Just if we if we may use the uh, so with the Queensland RSL, they've got their art the art raffle prize when mm. you go in for, for some of the arts or that yeah and some of the other organizations that might have the prize homes now with classics their whole idea is to be able to help veteran organizations that are doing things as intermediaries besides the big charities and then so because funding is a big issue is that these the smaller charities can do some amazing work but having donations on a on a regular basis as a result of the classics giveaways as part of those proceeds, it really helps us to be able to achieve our mission statement as well, which supplements our own fundraising efforts. And that's a big thing for us. Yeah, and not everybody wants to be... I mean, I've been involved with donating monthly to RSL lotteries for a long time, but not everybody wants to do that, but they might be interested in the the very fabulous cars mm. that that are up uh, as part of, I think it's sort of a lottery thing, isn't it? So, yes. yeah, you yes. buy tickets in that and you can win them. And I think it's a sort of a, a something that might appeal to a, a different part of the population mm. who are into cl- cars and... Uh, Getting de- going down the road in a beautiful Mustang or something along those lines. I did see some of the cars. I had a look. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it is, it is that good old, the good old-fashioned Australian muscle car. It does appeal to lots of people that, that like that sort of thing. And, and I, think it, I think it's great, you know. Look, I'd love to be able to win my, one myself <laughs> and go down in an old-school Tirana or a Monaro or something like that. The good old... Australian V8 muscle cars are, are really what, what tickle my fancy as well because it gives me that nostalgia of growing up here just down the road and the big burnouts and all that. Well, not that you do burnouts, but, um, you know, that reminds me of that point in my life where I'm like, yeah, this is really cool and watching Bathurst and all those things, you know, the old classic Ford versus Holden nostalgia is, is, is um, what draws me to those cool cars. Yeah, and you can use language like fanging down the road or, or hooning. <laughs> I might just do a bog lap down the main drag a few times. Well, you know, look, I might get about 400 metres with the price of fuel at the moment. Okay. <laughs> I'll, uh, it'll look good and sound good before I conk out. You know? Yes, and look, and look fabulous in the driveway, you know, in, in the afternoon when you're cleaning it and the neighbours are admiring it. <laughs> oh, that's right, exactly, yeah. That, that's part of the routine as well is getting there. It'll be like a... The slow motion of the ad where I'm pouring the wax on and I'm like waxing it off with a big <laughs> smile on the face. You know. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, tell me where people can um, go to get help and, and how they can get involved if they want to or, or purchase tickets for the lottery so that they yep. can provide support. Yeah, no worries. So if you want to purchase tickets for the for the um, classics, a lot a lot of the platform is that it's online, and then through Facebook or, or uh, Instagram, you'll see their their ads. 
for uh, the classics and then you just click on the link to be able to be in the uh, part of the, the giveaways that they're doing monthly and you can opt to, to do like one off for a particular vehicle or you could do for whatever vehicle is coming up on a regular basis. Now, there's that's one way that people can contribute and that's if you're looking to be able to, you know, to, to win a prize there. But you could also, we, you know, we're a registered ACNC registered charity and you can make donations directly to us. So we can also do our thing helping veterans and, and first responders and then also if you wanted to help there's other things besides monetary and we're always looking for people who've got different skills that can help out for us to be able to do the service delivery of of, um, of our programs so it's just about getting in contact with us on, on invisibleinjuries.org.au and and then dropping us a line and, and we could go from there and and if you're experiencing any mental health issues and want to be connected but don't know where to start, people can also call in and we'll point you in the right direction and connect you up directly with what's available locally in your area. And that's something that's big with us, you know. So either or, there's a few different things. If people are wanting to seek help, there's also other organisations like uh, the RSL sub-branch. They've got a whole network around Australia. If, you're, if, if we're just moving it back to the homelessness there, if you are experiencing something like that or some accommodation issues, you can contact the welfare group within the sub-branch and they can help you out to, to seek accommodation quickly. So there's, there's a few out there, but that, that's just a couple to name a few there, aren't you? Oh, no, look, that's really fantastic. So your contact for Invisible Injuries is, again? Invisibleinjuries, plural, .org .au. Right, terrific. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I would like to be able to use this uh, to, to say thank you for uh, having me on the show today so that we could chat about these issues and, and you know, how to get help and, and also reducing the stigma that surrounds homelessness and, and seeking help. But I also want to be able to say thanks for the service of uh, our veterans and current serving military members and also our first responders that are doing amazing work both uh, domestically and overseas at the moment. So thank you for your service and really appreciate it. Yeah. And thanks for talking to me about this and it's always nice for me to talk to somebody else who's uh, been living with post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. It's, uh, it is the invisible thing that uh, people often don't understand. So it's nice and we've been able to have a bit of a laugh about some aspects of that, which is really, really good. So Thank I very much, much appreciate it.